Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In today's episode, Bruce talks with Aaron Gray about how his mother's illness led him on a mission, and he founded Aunt Bertha, the Public Benefit Corporation. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and today I have Aaron Gray, the founder and CEO of Aunt Bertha, a public benefit corporation, the leading search and referral network in the United States. Their platform is used by most major health plans, hospital systems, select residential and cause organizations. Uh, by the way, Aaron is a 2019 TED Senior Fellow. Uh, he was a 2014 TED Fellow. And Aunt Bertha is really a mission-driven organization. So Aaron is a mission-driven CEO, my favorite kind of person to talk with. Aaron, welcome to The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It's great to be here. I look forward to the conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And um, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are now? Uh, sure. So I'm uh, one of seven children. I grew up in western New York in a town of about 20,000 people, born and raised. And uh, we, you know, we were a, a blue-collar family. My, my dad worked at a print shop three blocks away from where I grew up. And my mom um, her last job before she got sick was uh, she was a janitor at the local community college. She actually caught a rare brain disease called encephalitis, which meant that when she got out of the hospital, she f lost a large chunk of her memory, including her memory of, of me being born and um, my little sister being born. So it's interesting. One night she asked my dad, he sa she said, where's Becky? My dad said, well, she's, she's in Texas. And she goes, why? And he said, well, she's in college. My mom was remembering Becky as six years old. So it was interesting. The brain, you know, so little about the human brain and experiencing, you know, witnessing many conversations like that. I was very much responsible. My, what I worried about every day changed, I guess you could say at that point. And so I guess you could say I became a little bit more conscious about what I wanted to do in the world. Probably at the time, my biggest worry was the next cross-country season. It was, it was certainly challenging and it really defined our family. But in many ways, uh, it has given my life meaning. To, and to get meaning in life at a young age, in many ways, can, can be a gift. I don't know. It, it, I, I've, I have friends or have met people that uh, maybe um, haven't had that realization yet. And I, I feel fortunate to know what my life's work is. That's also a, a beautiful tribute to your mother and uh, to your memory of your mother. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm still involved in her life. So I, 18 years ago, I became her legal guardian. Um, she requires 24-hour care. Uh, she's based here in Austin. Very soon, I'm going to get my shot. I'm going to be able to visit her again. Uh, uh, she, she also survived COVID um, over this last year. So when you experience that, you then look around and you say, well, how often do things like this happen to people and what do people do when they struggle? And I think sort of the light bulb moment for me was 
sort of coming to that realization that the safety net uh, is broken still. And when people sort of face a life-changing event, it could be anything like an illness or it could also be, I lost my job for the first time and I'm unemployed and I don't know what to do. I just always thought about that from the shoes of somebody who was looking for help or a relative that was assisting others. And, you know, through a series of life events, had the idea to start Aunt Bertha in 2010. Where were you at that point? So in 2010, I I had a job. Fast forward a little bit. I went to get my master's in public policy at the LBJ School of Public Affairs here in Austin. And it was a time to change careers. I was a programmer before then and really enjoyed those two years of philosophizing about what's wrong with the world and um, sitting on couches in a graduate program. And it was fun. I made a decision to go into government. So I spent the next six years in government. And from 2006 to 2010, I had a wonderful job with a wonderful company uh, called Maximus, which worked very closely with Texas Health and Human Services Commission. And they were responsible for modernizing the way people get enrolled in SNAP benefits, uh, TANF benefits, the Children's Health Insurance Program. The commissioner used to say he wanted to help people to do that and add dignity to the process of enrolling in public benefits using technology. So I spent four years on that, and it was a fascinating four years because, if you'll remember, 2008 was during the global financial crisis. When you look at the stock market in September of 2008 that that fell, excuse me, You now have dramatic rise in unemployment. And with that dramatic rise in unemployment came an enormous demand for these public benefits. And the company that I worked with was responsible for running a statewide call center. So the volume of calls grew so fast in such a short amount of time, which also meant the volume of of people applying for SNAP program, now food, sorry, formerly food stamp program for the very first time. And I had a chance to put on a headset and listen to some calls with the agent that was taking those calls. I had an opportunity to have a better understanding of the relationship between economics and uh, public policy with respect to the safety net. And the short of it was that the state of Texas wasn't prepared to handle that much demand for these public benefits. They just didn't have the staff. And so what that meant was people in need weren't getting these services fast enough because they didn't have enough staff to process the applications for benefits. By the time I made that connection, it was probably late 2009. And in the beginning of 2010, I started thinking about, well, what happens if the public safety net breaks down, disappears, right? And I started researching the private safety net. What do people do when life throws them a curveball? And how do they connect to social services and realize I think there was an opening for a a new way of thinking. We are in our 11th year of operation. Uh, I started full time in September of 2010. Last year in March, it was history repeating itself because I was working in the safety net during the 2008 financial crisis. And here I am also working in the safety net, running Aunt Bertha, which helps people in need. And uh, it was a little bit of deja vu all over again, as they say. And 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 you see a lot of the, the dichotomies. And, and, you know, I think the short of it is, is that the safety net hasn't evolved very much in 12 years. And, and I think, I think there's a lot of innovation ahead 
in adding dig- dignity to the process of helping people and and simply making it easier for other people to help others. And uh, I think that's sort of the the world that we play in a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great um, uh, recent history sort of retrospective to look at this incredible crisis uh, over the last 13 months, 14 months, we're, we're, we're talking right now in April, you know, the, the vulnerability that it has exposed, the inequity that has been exposed, the gaps in government's ability to respond. So we've seen that in 2008, 9, 10, People were in crisis uh, also. So you've seen it now twice. And those are the bookends of this uh, mission-driven organization, Aunt Bertha. Um, I want to understand more about Aunt Bertha, but tell us what, where'd you get the idea? Um, and, and you know, you were a programmer, right? I, in an earlier life, I was a programmer. And um, I was, um, when I worked on the Texas project, I was a, I managed a team of programmers and, and business analysts. Yeah. And so uh, did that play any role in allowing the idea for Aunt Bertha to germinate? Oh, 100%. I mean, it, a lot of it came from seeing the broken system and thinking there ought to be a better way. So during a crisis, the state was very responsive in taking our ideas and allowing us to implement them. And uh, I'll, I'll always value that time. But things just happened slowly. Despite that, things just happened slowly. And I, and I remember um, some call center agents requested some work instructions, basically their scripts, to be written in Spanish. So we had a call center that was bilingual, and many folks spoke English and Spanish. And so, but the scripts were actually written uh, only in English. By the time the problem was pointed out, in the time that the scripts ended up being deployed, it was something like close to a year. And I wasn't involved in that project, but it was in my mind, a reminder that to enact change within the system, which, I, which I'm a big believer in, it takes so long uh, to move things. Just to think about as a, you know, we've worked with lots of call centers with lots of our clients and help uh, them manage them better and put in systems and practices to make the call center more effective. And you know, anybody who doesn't know the call center world, it is its own world. And so what you're talking about really is you have call center agents who are there to take calls and answer questions or make calls uh, and, and provide information. And what you're really saying is the Spanish speaking uh, call center agents were also being asked on whatever they were being paid, which I'm guessing was not a lot, to also be professional translators if they saw fit. Otherwise, they were just winging it. You know, I don't want to speak for them, but um, it wasn't an, a hard request. It's just trains and approvals and motions. And of course, technology was different back then to the state's credit. Yes, there were some approvals that needed to take place, but also, well, who knows? Maybe they needed to get the subcontractors to actually do it. And um, But you're right. And so these agents, you know, did the best they could and, and they were translating on the fly. And, and I would imagine that would have been exhausting all day long. Yeah. And they're, prof- I mean, it's hard enough to take calls all day long if you have the proper job aids and, um, and work instructions. Uh, so I'm seeing two things. I'm seeing it from the experience of, of the call center operator because work is my work. Of course, on the other end are people trying to get help uh, accessing uh, the, the services they need. Uh, but meanwhile, I realized that you're also pointing to, gee, here's a small process improvement that took a year to effect. 
Well, exactly. And then, you know, going back to the agents, the headiness of the topic of their calls was stressful. So you, you add that translation stress on top of the fact that you're speaking to somebody in need in what may be their most desperate moment, asking to enroll in food stamps or, or, or TANF or something like that. So yeah, the empathy is, um, was there pretty clearly, but, but the idea was there's gotta be a better way. And, and if I'm going to enact change, I think it has to be done from the outside. And after four years, and, and I was lucky in that I knew how to advocate. I was able to advocate for a lot of changes. And it was at a time where the state of Texas was very willing to listen and listen to my, my suggested changes and my company's suggested changes. Uh, but it wasn't fast enough. There are two, two big problems that I saw. One was you, you take an agency there's one of the largest agencies in the United States over a very, very large budget, um, the second largest state. And there was an enormous amount of, of contractors, technology contractors. At around the time uh, that I worked there, the standard way of doing business was to hire a large consulting firm. And that large consulting firm would collect requirements and would follow a waterfall project management methodology. And it ended up being very expensive. But around the time, Software as a service companies were just starting to come up with multi-tenant applications where you could subscribe to software and not have to build something custom. So I had a little bit of tailwinds at the time uh, in terms of that's where the world was going. And then my idea was, well, gosh, rather than create something custom just for governments, nonprofits have the exact same problem in that how do they triage a bunch of people who need services to only a finite number of slots. And so the idea was, could I start a company and build software? And and then I did become a programmer again because I built the first version of our software. And it was two components. It was a search component where anybody in need should be able to just put in their zip code and find out at least which options are available to them. And then the second component was, if I'm a nonprofit, a free and easy way for people that work at nonprofits to accept applications online and to give people the dignity of a yes or a no electronically. And, um, you know, that was the idea and the thesis behind starting the company. The dignity of a yes or no. I like that. Because when you're in a position where you're desperate, when you're in a position where you need help, contrary to some of the myths and conspiracies, most people would prefer to not be on government assistance or not be dependent on a nonprofit organization or an NGO to make sure that they and their children have food or a place to live, right? I mean, most people, if they're in this situation, they're in extremists. And so on top of that, to have to navigate a bureaucracy and, you know, essentially beg for help. What a painful human reality. And so you're looking at a technology solution. At what point did it become viable? That's, and you summarized it perfectly. And, and that's a great question. You know, I had some savings in the early days. I was working really hard for four years, which meant I was never spending money. And, and so I had a little bit of savings and I didn't have a business model at first. It really, the idea of a, the search in my mind was always going to be free. So for a seeker, which is somebody in need, they will never pay. And I also was a big, am a big believer that we won't use ads and we won't monetize the data and we'll protect people's data as a cornerstone for the operation and, and for the business. 
but I didn't, I didn't know how the company would monetize. At first I thought, let's build a, a simple screening tool that nonprofits could license for $50 a month. And we got a first, we got a few customers in, um, I want to say early 2013. And I think we got up to a point where we were making $450 a month. It's safe to say we were killing it at the time. <laughs> so in, in 2012, I had a, an opportunity to go through a startup called the Unreasonable Institute. It's now called Uncharted. And what they did is they brought together entrepreneurs that were interested in social good from all over the world. There were 20 and we lived in a house in Boulder, Colorado for six weeks. That's where we learned how to make our pitch to investors, to um, network. And it was a wonderful experience. In fact, I hired one of the co-founders and he's our VP of finance several years later. In my experience with that organization, we raised some angel investment. I think we raised in December of 2012, we raised $100,000. And at the time when I was bootstrapping a business, that felt like a billion. Sure. 100000 is a lot more than four fifty a month. It is. Yeah. So I was able to hire a full-time person that uh, was able, was very technical and was able to help me with several things. And, um, and then it grew from there. So uh, we ended up raising investment from angel investors, uh, which got us to where we are today. But something interesting happened along the way in 2014. And that's when the Affordable Care Act was finally litigated and accepted as the law of the land after all of the appeals. And what we noticed was that our search engine, we have these reports. And so we're able to see which organizations are doing searches on our platform. And at the time, we were just starting to get to nationwide coverage. So we started to notice that employees of some of the largest Fortune 100 companies were finding our little site and doing searches. And these were health plans and hospital systems. Probably in the middle of 2014, I actually had lunch with a doctor at a large health plan in Texas. He told me what was going on. And what he said was, he said, the way healthcare finance is structured, uh, health insurance companies or health plans are at risk, meaning if it cost the state of Texas $10,000 to insure Aaron based on his age or something like that, if Aaron just went to the doctor once and got a physical and checked out fine, maybe that doctor's visit only cost $500. And so the health plan actually made a profit off of Aaron this year. However, if Bruce goes to the doctor and consumed about $150,000 worth of medical services this year, well, they lost $140,000 off of Bruce. And so you weigh it all out and then there's a margin. And so what his company and others started to do is they realized that one of the reasons why people get sick is because their basic needs are not getting met. They become very stressed out. Um, maybe in some cases their electricity is shut off and they don't have a place to store their insulin shots. It's any number of reasons. And they learn this by reaching out to their members and just getting to know them. So around 2014, these health plans started hiring tens of thousands of social workers and care coordinators to get to know their, their members and to try to help them and to try to help them connect to services. And so they would call after, let's say, an emergency room visit and say, hey, just checking in. Uh, do you need a ride to your follow-up appointment? And what they might find out is that maybe that person doesn't have a ride or maybe that they, they don't have childcare. And so then they, they, they started using our platform at bertha.com to find those local social services. 
and there is our light bulb moment learning about this from, from this doctor who, who was in the innovation office of his health plan. We actually then started licensing, white labeling our software and building some advanced integrations that larger customers would subscribe to. So we now work with 340 customers nationwide, including eight of the top 10 largest health plans in the United States, nearly 200 hospital systems in the United States. We are the platform that they use for uh, finding and connecting people to social services. Uh, There's now um, sort of a sector called Social Determinants of Health Networks, and we're the leading platform in that sector. So you were were a, uh, a prime innovator in the development of that sector. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were the first one that had a platform. We were the first one that focused on the problem. And we we didn't know we were doing it at the time because we didn't come at the problem like somebody who is a career healthcare executive. I think one of the reasons why we're successful is that we see this problem as an information problem, not as a healthcare finance problem. So meaning if people in need in their most dire moments just knew what services are available to them and could connect and get the dignity of a yes or a no, that information problem is a solvable problem and it's done in many other sectors. And if that problem is solved, then it it can materially affect the healthcare finance problem. And even when I'm talking with prospects, in sales calls or things like that. That's the way that I talk about it because after all, it really is an information problem. And, and that's the problem we're trying to solve. And so even though healthcare is a big chunk of our customer base, more and more organizations are joining our network because maybe they're a community college in the education space where kids are unnecessarily dropping out because of life getting in the way. Maybe it's a single mom and the grandmother takes care of her kid and the grandmother passes away. And so there she is and doesn't have a childcare option. And and so maybe believes that her only option is to drop out of college. Or maybe uh, somebody who works at a restaurant across town and his car breaks down and it costs $700 to fix and he has to pick up some new shifts and he can't go to class. If you think about it, the sectors affected by the information problem is across the board. Prisons, for example. In the area of parole and prison recidivism, sometimes people go back to prison because they just had trouble readjusting and couldn't find a job and therefore couldn't get some of their basic needs met. And we think that if the social safety net operated more efficiently, then I think we can get ahead of some of those problems. But I think more importantly, getting this information in a digital format so that we can actually have more details to say, hey, what are people searching for and connecting to in this zip code? And why is this zip code different from something that is 100 miles away? And could we look at the safety net at a hyper-regional level using real data in order to set better public policy? So what you're really doing is mobilizing business intelligence to increase the efficiency and efficacy of public services that are already available. They're just not being utilized for optimal return. Absolutely. The thing is, you can't study that data unless you have access to that data. And so the trick then is, how do you align the incentives so all parties are appropriately motivated um, 
to use your platform so that you can study that data in the long run. And that's that's why we exist. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating and brilliant. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. So is your, I know you're a public benefit corporation and please forgive me, I'm a lawyer. I should know uh, if that's a special section of section 501c, but um, is it, (laughs) or is it a for-profit corporation? Yeah. So a a B corporation is a for-profit corporation that has basically what they call a double bottom line or um, a social mission. And so there was an organization in Philadelphia called B Labs. They were core believers in that business can be a force for good. And somewhere along the lines, we've let profit or shareholders corrupt, you know, business in in many ways. I'm not a lawyer, but you've sort of heard the buzzwords that corporations exist for the purposes of their shareholders. And in some states, they must consider the impact to shareholders before making decisions. What the B Corporation movement was, was to sort of add to that and, and say, well, they also should consider stakeholders, which is the people you serve or your customers, because it shouldn't, decisions shouldn't solely be made for the purposes of benefiting shareholders. And so they have this new designation. And so when I started the company, I uh, incorporated as a Delaware C Corp um, because there wasn't a formal B Corporation designation. And so with uh, B Labs, who advocated for this movement, they were able to bring in very large companies to get behind it. So you now have Patagonia and many other socially minded business that are now becoming B corporations. And so as soon as Delaware was able to add an addendum that allowed for a formal structure for a B corporation, we went through the paperwork and it required, I think at the time, 100% shareholder uh, consent. And so we were able to do that. And so I really value the B corporation status because Companies are always going to have tough times and they're always going to have very tough decisions. And what is important is to have the right governance structure. And some of the things that the B Corporation movement wants is independent seat on a board, or maybe they also want processes that you follow. And so every year, I think it's every two years, you have to go through a very large and extensive certification process with B Labs. And they actually put out scorecards for all the different B corporations and what their score was. And so we were, we were excited to win some awards from B Labs. And uh, we're not perfect. Every company has their struggles. But what's most important is that the people will change, but the structure should, shouldn't change as much. And, and how do you build structures so that people within the company can, en- can enact change and stay active? And, and, and that's a tough line. Are there shareholders and do they get a cut of the money? Yes, there are shareholders. You know, someday we hope to be profitable and um, have dividends and to be able to do that. Uh, but yes, we do have shareholders, um, which are both employees and some of our, some of our investors. Gotcha. And so is it a special tax designation or is it more like a certification that you are mission driven and that you have passed some kind of an audit that uh, from from the B labs that determines that you include a diverse constituency of stakeholders in your decision making? It's two things. It, it is definitely a certification with B labs and um, companies can pursue the certification. Um, so think of that as independently. In some states, not all states yet, you can have a B Corp designation. And so that's the purposes for purposes of putting 
your public benefit into the company charter, which is a, an official document. Um, it's not a tax write-off for the purposes like a nonprofit would be. So that's it, it doesn't encroach on nonprofit status. Uh, it's separate. So I think I understand though, and it sounds like now what's driving your revenue is uh, the organizations, not the seekers, not the the people in need, and it's and you're not being paid by the providers of services either. But it's some kind of intermediaries who see that their bottom line is affected by the disruption of uh, access to information about services. Uh, among the seekers and the people in need. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so as a principle, you know, we don't charge the seekers um, and we don't monetize their information through ads or anything like that. And the nonprofits, we don't charge them either. And so uh, it, it's interesting because the organizations that we do charge are those, well, let me take a step back. We are also fine with very large health plans using our free service. So there's a lot of functionality that's there. And um, as a public benefit, we want some social worker at some health plan or some hospital system to use our software and to help their own patients and clients and members uh, find help. And so as part of our mission, uh, we absolutely want that. What we decided to do was to build some advanced features so that those organizations who need advanced features like backend integration, where they want um, to tightly integrate our referral network with, let's say, their electronic health record. And you know that is extra work on our part. And so we monetize it that way. Or in many instances, some organizations, they private label our software and they put their logo on it and it's their URL and they monetize that way. And there's also team-based features. The organizations that tend to become customers just so happen to be large organizations. And where they benefit is if the people they serve are getting connected to services. We're striving towards sort of a utopian way where these large organizations you know, subsidize the free service. But they have a clear return on investment, right? Because if what they're finding is uh, that uh, Bruce, who loves to get tests in the, I mean, you know, of course you, you, you cost them $500. They made $9,500 on you, but me, I'm costing them 140 grand, uh, that, that, uh, uh, if I could get access to social services, uh, then they're going to get a return on investment because they're going to drive my cost down to nine to, to a thousand and make $9,000 on there's also an ROI on their investment and they want to drive down the, that cost and make sure Bruce gets access to services so his basic needs are met and with the hope in the future that that Bruce would only connect to services that he needs and uh, then you have a you know a more sustainable healthcare finance model and the same with the community college that if uh, that uh, single parent who loses uh, a parent who is providing healthcare instead of not being able to go to community college it's not like your services saying, oh, now you have to provide them with childcare. What you're, what you're doing is saying childcare is available. You just didn't know about it. it, it exactly. It, and, and, and so the chancellor of the community college or the academic advisor, they want to know about this stuff because they have levers that they can pull to help, whether it's spending time with that mom or, or in some cases, some community colleges are just helping out with emergency cash assistance because you know, when somebody drops out, not only does that affect their dropout rate, but also it affects their tuition. 
uh, which so it affects their bottom line. But you're right. That's the return on investment. And, and and you now at this point, right, after uh, running on air for a couple of years or a few years uh, and then running on 450 bucks a month and then your your jackpot of a hundred thousand dollar investment uh, in 2021, you've served uh, your six millionth customer. Uh, six millionth user. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, um, you know, so seeker user. Uh, yes. And, and uh, I, I didn't mean to conflate that with customer. Those are the folks who pay the, those do gooding insurance companies and healthcare plans um, uh, are the ones paying the bill, which is just fine. The reality is what you're demonstrating is that entrepreneurship, innovation, business acumen uh, with a mission you can create a business positive entity that also serves people and helps uh, government do its job better for people, helps nonprofits do their job better for people, uh, healthcare organizations, community colleges. What a beautiful story. And like, is there something you can share about, look how big we are other than 6 million users served? And- yeah, yeah, sure. I, we're close to 190 employees. Um, and, you know, of course, we're still a private company and uh, we're growing. And so we've grown pretty substantially over the last year. And it just seems like in, in 2016, we were 13 employees. And, so, and now you're uh, uh, 190 employees. Are How many of them are programmers? I don't have the exact number, but our, our product team, uh, which includes programmers, is around 60 people. And um, uh, we also have a data operations team which is around 50 people, um, including as well as our network team. And those teams are responsible for ensuring the search results are accurate. So they're talking to nonprofits. They're researching the search results that you see and keeping that current. So um, we are hiring, if anybody's listening. Um, uh, We're always looking for good people who care about these issues. Are they all in Austin or are they all over the place? Um, we have employees all around the United States. Our headquarters is in Austin, and um, we have a second office in Denver, Colorado. So, you know, for the right candidate, of course, you know, they can work remotely. And COVID has um, done a lot in showing what's possible on that front. But, um, yes, we, it is, uh, we are aggressively hiring and, and looking to find good people who care about these issues. And, and, and where are your uh, big jobs? Are they in software engineering or are they in... Uh, what, what, what are the positions you're trying to fill? Well, we're trying to uh, grow our engineering team, which um, uh, is growing pretty rapidly. Uh, we're excited to, we have all sorts of listings on Indeed. It's, it's tough to hire engineers, especially in markets like in Austin. But, um, you know, we, we, we try to try to find the right balance. We're not a company that's going to, you know, expect 100 hours a week. And um, it's not a parody of Silicon Valley TV show, if you will. <laughs> But no, and then we're also lots of different positions across the board. Our product team is hiring as well as data team. And um, uh, we're, we're also growing in, in other areas, looking for good, strong policy analysts. And uh, uh, the list goes on. What would you say is the secret of, of your success here? Is it is it that you've had this laser-focused mission-driven orientation? Or is it your genius? Is it your own diligence? Or is it, you know, I know, of course, the team, it's more than one person, but how would you, what's the secret to your success? I think what we've tried to do as a company is to have the humility to understand the problem we're trying to solve is to ensure that seekers 
can at least understand their options. And when you start a company, and especially as you get bigger and you get, you know, maybe you raise capital, the temptation to lose your focus and to try to boil the ocean and to try to take on a lot of different projects is very real. In the early days, when you're bootstrapped, you don't have a choice but to really focus on your core. And, and our core for the longest time has been a nationwide comprehensive network so that anybody in any zip code can at least know their options. But we've stayed very focused on our core um, as compared to others that are out there. But I think that falls for any business is really trying to understand what your place in the world is and, and, and focusing on that. But I think the other thing is a little bit of good luck and timing. Um, if you're in it for the right reasons, there's just so much noise. Everybody has advice. You know, there's blogs and, you know, there's, you know, investors and consultants and employees. And, and in many times you don't know, you literally don't know which way to make a decision. It, it's, it's, it's your guessing. And sometimes you have to ignore all of those bits of advice and just listen to whatever's screaming inside of you. I think we've tried really hard to stay focused and, and trust our gut uh, on this front. And, and I think that it's helped. We also got a little bit lucky with the way healthcare finance is changing, which helped with our you know, business model. But I think at the end of the day, health and human services is an area, the administration, especially human services, which some, some might call the safety net, it's an area that hasn't gotten a lot of innovation with technology. I think that's sort of where the new wave of investment will happen. Imagine being able to speak out loud because maybe you can't afford something and then automatically someday in the future, maybe a health plan or a hospital system or even a county government might just make that problem go away, depending on things that might happen. Because at the end of the day, end of the day somebody's paying for the safety net. The question is, how much pain does somebody have to go through to get there? And I th I'm just an optimist about the future. Your optimism is paying off for uh, millions of people and uh, hundreds of, of organizations. Uh, as our time is winding down, if you get on an elevator with somebody who's looking for your advice and somebody says, you know, how do I get to be more like you or how do I get to be the best kind of me? Uh, what's your sort of short form career advice? As a young person who's striving towards making the world a better place, we all go through a period of time where we look up at our leaders and we think they must, they just must be a bunch of idiots. And I've, I've done that before. And um, whether it's in school or a previous job or towards the government, I've had those thoughts, you know, but I think as I've gotten older, I've tried really hard to listen and to assume the best and don't jump to that conclusion so far right away. You, can, you might come to that conclusion after you have a conversation with them. But in a world where everybody's sort of going at each other with social media um, and our sort of political environment in front of us, I think I would encourage everybody for your own sort of well-being and, and sanity as an entrepreneur or even as an employee, if you approach a conversation assuming the best, the outcome of that conversation just has a much higher probability of success because at the end of the day, we're just trying to move each other as humans and I think everybody generally wants what's best. And um, I've, I've made that mistake for a long period of time. And I've been thinking a lot about that recently. And if you just do that, that can affect the way you work. That can affect your personal relationships and keep you happier in the long run. Good advice for anyone, anywhere. Uh, Aaron Gray, founder and CEO of Aunt Bertha. 
Thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. Thank you, Bruce. It was a real pleasure uh, and uh, looking forward to, to listening. Yeah, thank you so much. In our next episode, I talk with my old professor, Austin Serrett, the brilliant and famous political scientist. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.